0: Hello and welcome to In the Booth here on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Brendan Bachelor and Randeep Janda. We are, of course, the Canucks play-by-play team here on Sportsnet 650. And this is our weekly show slash podcast In an eventful last few days for this Vancouver Canucks team. Randeep capped off by a disappointing loss on Saturday night at the hands of the Sharks in San Jose in a game where the Canucks you know, didn't play well through the first 40 minutes, didn't play well in the first two minutes of the third period, gave up two goals to go down 4-2, to two, and then they woke up and pushed late, but it was too little, too late.
1: That's exactly what it was, and when you're talking about, you know, heading into that third period tied 2-2, it's kind of a, a recap or maybe a, a, you know, deja vu moment where the Canucks had a similar situation in Vancouver. It was 2-2 against San Jose, and in that game, They end up picking up the victory. They end up, you know, really doing what they should do. Uh, Fast forward to this game in San Jose and the opposite happened. You have a bad start to the third period batch. And, you know, what seemed like, I wouldn't say necessarily a promising road trip, but you wanted to get four points out of it. You could probably see, uh, you know, being a competitive three to four points was a reasonable goal. Now you walk out of this road trip, the three gamer with two points and That's something that's really a disappointment. And I think looking back at that San Jose game, um, a lot of criticism in the market, even the coach himself was not happy with the team's effort. And you can understand why. Absolutely, you
0: can, uh, especially through the first two periods. Obviously, the push was great, and they came very close. Miller had that chance right at the end in front of the goal to tie the game, and and Kakanen got a piece of it, and I thought Capo Kakanen was actually pretty good in that game, too. He deserves some credit as a guy that only had one win this season going into the game, but the story from that game is not the San Jose Sharks played well. It's the Vancouver Canucks did not the Vancouver Canucks allowed the Sharks you know to to win that game and it's interesting because we've seen the Canucks play slip a little bit especially at five on five over the last few weeks and on certain nights their power play has allowed them to win games or or they've found some timely scoring or some depth scoring like we saw the other night in Seattle where guys down the lineup are contributing, but uh, for a team that, you know, we were lauding early in the year for having the best five-on-five goal differential and, you know, at least going into the game on Saturday, they still did have the best five-on-five goal differential or even strength goal differential, I should say, uh, because of some of those tremendous numbers they put up early in the year. That's the most, uh, you know, concerning feels like too strong of a word because they've had such a great start to the year. They've built a cushion that I'm not concerned about, where things are going, but it is a trend or a regression back to the mean in terms of their five-on-five play and how they're not dominating at the level they were early. Yeah, regression is a topic we covered a couple of episodes
1: ago, and we expected it in some ways. So the save percentage, you expected that. Uh, the shooting percentage for the team to plummet a little bit, you expected that. But Batch, one of the, the strong parts of this team's game thus far, or this season has been, the star player stepping up, right? And Quinn Hughes, 11 straight games with a point, uh, still doing his thing. I think JT Miller, we've seen multi-point games from him as well, Uh, but there are some worrying signs about are you getting enough five-on-five production? So, you know, looking at that game against San Jose, first two goals of the game, power play goals, uh, you like that, you enjoy that because that means that's a, a key part of their game that's clicking, but in a game where they dominated possession, offensive zone possession time was through the roof for this team. Right? Nearly half of the game played in San Jose's zone. To be able to walk out of that game and have a 13 to eight lead in high danger chances and end up losing that game, um, it's extremely disappointing. So I think there are some things that the Canucks are going to have to hunker down here. That high end production is one of them, where, you know, in a five on five game against the San Jose Sharks, where you are camped on their zone, where you generate more from a high danger perspective, but you walk out of that game being outscored two nothing, five on five. That is a, a, you know, a problem that I think the Vancouver Canucks are starting to maybe see some, some warning signs. It's not necessarily a a area that you have to be super concerned, but you know, there's a a part of, okay, are they able to produce enough five on five and how tired are they? There's a, there's a bit of combination of both of these things, but it's something that they're going to have to figure out soon because the schedule, it's not getting any easier. It's about to ramp up real quick here.
0: Yeah, a ton of divisional games coming up this week, Anaheim and Vegas on Tuesday and Thursday, and then Saturday in Calgary against the Flames. So these are all four-point games, and, you know, I guess we could call it a four-point game against the Sharks because they're in your division, even though they have no hope of catching you, so it doesn't really count as that in my mind, but it is because you will expect all the teams around you to beat the Sharks when they get opportunities, and You let two points slide in a game like that, you know, maybe that's the difference between. Uh, home ice or third in the Pacific. Maybe it's the difference between third in the Pacific and a wild card spot. Maybe it's the difference between the first wild card spot and the second wild card spot. And if things really trend in the wrong direction for you, it could be the difference between making the playoffs and not making the playoffs. Now, let me make it clear. I think things would have to go absolutely pear shaped for that to happen. And I don't expect that. The Canucks, as I said, have built up that cushion to start the year, but it's points that you've flushed away, essentially. And Rick Tockett, I thought, said it best last night where he talked about how good the performance was in Seattle and how that feels like a waste when you follow it up like you did in San Jose. And, you know, some of the production that you talk about from from guys up the lineup, I think that's a, a fair comment, especially at 5-on-5, five five because we know those guys are producing on the power play. And I want to talk about Elias Pedersen in particular because there's been lots of speculation in the last week or so that he might be playing with some sort of injury because he hasn't looked right, hasn't looked uh, you know, as confident as he was early in the year where everything he touched turned to gold essentially in terms of his offensive production. But both he and Rick Tockett came out and said, no, he's fine. And they poured cold water on any sort of uh, assumption that Pedersen might be playing through an injury. Now, uh, the only thing we can really do at this point is take those guys at their word because we're not in the trainer's room. We're not on the medical staff. We don't know the intricacies of what Pedersen's dealing with. But I think it's fair to say, and you look at the game last night, up until the big hit he laid on Addison in the third period that kind of got the Canucks going... It was not a great night for Elias Pettersson, and we're starting to see some of those things that we saw from him when he really struggled a couple of years ago to begin the year, kind of creeping back into his game. He doesn't look confident. He doesn't look decisive with the puck. He's not playing as fast as I think we saw him playing early in the year, and he's passing up obvious shooting opportunities as well.
1: Yeah, you talk about
0: decisiveness,
1: and I would say even, you know, zooming out a little bit, just general confidence in this game right now. It doesn't seem to be there. Uh, you referenced a couple of years ago. I remember up until a game on January 19th, if I'm not mistaken, against the Washington Capitals on a road trip, uh, that was a season, the start of the season to forget for one Elias Petterson. And, you know, looking back at that, that was the year that the, the coaching change happened. Travis Green uh, was fired and Bruce Boudreau was brought into the mix. Um, yeah, it was very similar to this, and at that point, we knew Elias Pettersson uh, was dealing with something. At this point in time, the coach and the players say that's not the issue. But Batch, let's just not knowing what's going on there. I think what we're seeing from Pettersson is a, a real lack of confidence, and whether that is you know rooted in a medical issue or a, you know a health concern or whatever, we're not sure. But you're seeing him cut to the middle of the ice a lot less. And what I notice is that when there's one-on-one opportunities or there's transition opportunities, he's not being as aggressive as he has been in the past. And that really does make him a facilitator more than anything. It takes away the shot threat where he's been most dangerous on a shot threat. The last two weeks has been on the power play when he has a little bit more open space, when there's less of a, a concern of maybe, you know, taking contact when he's in transition, the ability to go to the middle of the ice and the lack of, Wanting to do so, from my opinion, is really making him a less dangerous player. You're seeing him pass, uh, go towards the half wall a little bit more and lay off to Ilya Mikheyev, who may be driving the net. And this goes back a couple of weeks where, remember, a game against Ottawa, Mikheyev scored that way with the puck going off a skate. But since then, pedersen has been maybe a little less aggressive going to the middle of the ice, whether that's just mental, whether that's him protecting, you know, potentially an injury, uh, whatever it may be. but a lack of confidence slash aggression in his game is showing.
0: Yeah, and uh, I'm not going to sit here and and talk about whether we should or shouldn't believe Tockett and Pedersen because, as I said, we can only take this at face value. But -hmm. what I will say is when Pedersen was struggling to start the year a couple of seasons ago – He never wanted to use an injury issue as an excuse. And then at the end of the year, he was asked about it and said, yeah, my wrist wasn't right yet, and that probably played a factor in why I didn't really find my game until after Christmas and into the new year. So um, I'll just leave it at that. I think it's probably still possible that he's trying to play through something, but Elias Patterson is the most dangerous when he looks confident, when he's playing with that aggression. And you're right, getting to the middle of the ice you know forcing defenders to make decisions so that either he gets shooting lanes or creates opportunities for his line mates and to be perfectly honest when uh, you look at how that line played last night i thought mckayev and lafferty were really good getting in on the forecheck and creating and it was less about what Pedersen was doing with those guys
1: and that's a fair comment to make right a lot of those opportunities especially early on in the game i think there was a you know even after the the sam lafferty non-goal uh, there were opportunities that Mckayev got. There was opportunities that Lafferty started with his forecheck, and from a Pedersen perspective, it's nice to see Mckayev get opportunities because that means that he's getting up to speed slowly. Um, Ilya Mckayev is, is a fun player to watch because he's got speed, he's got the wheels, uh, but remember him? I remember covering him in Toronto a fair bit as well, and he's going to get a lot, a lot of opportunities. He doesn't score on a lot of them, and he's a frustrating player to watch, but the point is, if he's in those areas, if he's creating those opportunities, that means you're getting the McKeough that you expect. He's supposed to be a uh, you know a threat when he's on the ice, and I think we're starting to see that. But the downside of what we're seeing right now is, you know, Elias Petterson, whatever the issue, uh, is a little bit more passive in terms of his ability to strike on the offensive side of things five on five. And I'm not saying you know you know physicality. He's tried to engage that way. We saw in that Colorado game, he was aggressive on the forecheck on kill McCarr, um, trying to create something. The Kalen Addison hit a great example of, you know, trying his best to do something, but offensively we're seeing, you know, some of his line mates maybe be aggressive on the forecheck, but Pedersen isn't able to do that for whatever reason. So it is something to watch your batch as you go into a set of games against, you know, Anaheim's had a good start to the year, but they're, they're really leveling off here. They're not the same team that they had started the season. Uh, they've lost a number in a row. Uh, beyond that, you mentioned it, Vegas. That one, two, three uh, threat down the middle at the center position is not an easy one to play against. You look at Calgary. They you know, lost most recently to Colorado, but they're a team that's turning it around as well, and they're finding some confidence in their game. Uh, the Devils are on their night. They have that quick strike ability too. So, you know, Elias Pettersson, uh, turning his game around and getting back into, not necessarily, you know, racking up the points batch, uh, which would help this team, but winning your matchups. It, that is going to be really important down the stretch here because the real strength of this team, we know it's in goal, no doubt about that with Thatcher Demko, but the real strength of this team is that you've got two high-end centers that can beat you on the ice. If one is struggling or if one is, you know, at essentially... You know, even with their matchups, the other guy is in a situation where he's there's a good chance that he's going to win his matchups, or he's that uh, elite, and you know they're able to drive a line. And when Elias Pettersson's not able to do that, this is a very different team.
0: And you know, talking about that line, one of the guys whose stock has risen the most this week, I would say, is Sam Lafferty, who uh, was playing on the fourth line when we spoke uh, and did our show just over a week ago and in the game in San Jose, finds himself on the top line, or if we're calling it the top line, the Pedersen line, let's put it that way, because you could probably say the Miller line's the top line as well, finds himself on the Pedersen line for a second straight game and on the ice at six on five at the end of the game when the team needed a goal to try and tie it. Now, you know, we can talk about what that means for the Canucks' depth and certainly about what it means for Andre Kuzmenko and and his future going forward, both in the short term and the long term. And don't worry if you're, you know, yelling at your radio, how are you guys not talking about Kuzmenko yet? We're going to get to that. Or don't worry. Away. We've got uh, a lot of time here on the show this week. But, um, you know, it's clear that the coach wants predictability in – In the game of the guys that he's going to have on Pedersen's wing, and that in part is what has allowed Lafferty's stock to rise and Kuzmenko's stock to fall.
1: I would say predictability, and the other word I would use for Lafferty is versatility, because he can play in the bottom six, as we've seen throughout this season. He's able to really, you know, play well with most players. It doesn't matter what center he's played with. He's been able to find uh, that. I want to say, you know, just being comfortable with whoever he's on the ice with but here's another thing with Kuzmenko not in the lineup right now Lafferty's done a heck of a job we've seen him be aggressive on the four check create opportunities as he did in the first period for Ilya Mikheyev off that four check but Batch let me put this forward to you as well if there's a slip in Bavillier's game or Filipe Giuseppe cannot rediscover what he was doing at the beginning of the year is there any doubt that Sam Lafferty would play well with JT Miller on that line being aggressive as a F1 being able to start something there no, i have no doubt so you no can play on every single line in this lineup and that's exactly what you know rick Tockett wants so whether he sticks on the first line as we call it with Elias Petterson or not i think sam lafferty has really his stock has grown big time in the sense that he's showing this coaching staff that you can put me anywhere and i know my role there's certain things i'm not going to budge from that's the staples it's the being aggressive on the forecheck and one thing that he has that Bavilia does not have and Phil Giuseppe don't have, and Kuzmenko don't have that for that matter, is the ability to take faceoffs, the ability to play center. And you mentioned six on five or playing late in games. Uh, he's a guy that can do that on the offensive and defensive side of things. So I think in terms of even though the team is having mixed results, even though the team is not you know playing to the level that we've seen earlier on this year, this week was a good week for Sam Lafferty because that word, trust, I think he's winning it with
0: this coaching staff. And you can apply all of those things to Niels Oman, too. And we're kind of previewing, uh, to a certain extent, our rose ceremony, which we'll get to before the end of the show. But, you know, if we're doing sort of a a stock watch and whose stock is climbing and whose stock is falling with the Canucks right now, Niels Oman's stock has gone through the roof. He gets called up from Abbotsford prior to the game against Seattle has a couple of points in that game, and at multiple points over the past few days, when Rick Tockett has been asked questions that have nothing to do with Niels Oman, he goes out of his way to bring up Niels Oman and how much he likes his play, and that's another guy that can play the middle, can play the wing, that they might trust in certain situations where they may not trust – other players. The face-off circle is an area of his game that he still needs to round out. I think he was like 38% in the circle in the NHL last year, so that's not an area of strength for him yet, but he's a guy that took being sent down to Abbotsford – and could have sulked and could have pouted, but instead he went down there and put up a point per game. Now he's back in the NHL. He's played two games, which means he's hit 70 for his career, which means they have to put him on waivers to send him back down now. And we knew that the head coach liked him, wanted him to be – with the club at the start of the season. And because of the numbers game and with the situation with Hoaglander and waivers, you know, that, that wasn't able to happen. And, and Oman went down, but he, you know, we talk about Rick talk favorites, right? We've talked about De Giuseppe. We've talked about Joshua in certain stretches. We were just talking about Lafferty in that conversation and you could put Niels Oman right at the top of that list right now, I think.
1: For sure. And I think, you know, when you're talking about face-offs with him, he's, through two games, the sample size is small, but you know, fifty-eight percent of as of right now, we'll see. Uh, that's an area of concern. Last year, he's come back a little bit stronger. Uh, build out that sample size. A big part of this conversation is also Pew Suter, right? What does the future hold for him in terms of when is the return likely? Uh, we don't know at this point in time, but with Niels Oman playing confidently, especially in that first game, a plus three, two assists, and if he can bring more of that, 10 to 12 minutes per game, uh, First game, he played a lot more. Second game, they're chasing the game. You probably want more offensive guys on the the ice. You can understand why he'd limit his minutes a little bit there. But this is a guy that, until Pew Suter is, is not back, he allows Lafferty to play on the wing. He allows him to be an aggressive four-checker, which that top six needs right now, whether it's next to Pederson, whether it's next to uh, JT Miller. So it does allow some flexibility for the rest of the lineup. But yeah, then you start looking at other players in that lineup, right? So I think the next guy that you're probably going to be looking at to say, all right, is it time for a bit of a response is Phil DiGiuseppe. This is a player that has been the star student But you know, as I was surpassed in my grade school experience a lot as well, you have one good quiz, (laughs) you have one good term, doesn't mean you're an honor roll student batch. You you have to keep it going. And there are a couple of players that are are now showing that, hey, we want to crack the top six too, or maybe we can do that with Bavillier and, uh, of course, uh, Sam Lafferty. So that's why I think this is a, a very important time for some players on this roster right now to keep that consistency going as they are playing tired.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of when you learn the most about your team is in the dog days of the season when the schedule gets congested and you're playing three games in four nights for, you know, multiple weeks like we've seen in November. Now things do settle down a bit now as we start to get closer to turning the calendar to the month of December, but uh, the point about versatility is so true, and it's something that I don't know if this management group specifically targeted versatility with some of the players that they brought in, but they have it much more with their forward group than they did in years past, where a centerman would go down with an injury and suddenly you'd be looking around going, we don't have anybody that can play the middle. Well, guess what? Pew suitors out right now. That means Niels Oman can go into the middle. Heaven forbid they have another injury at center. Sam Lafferty can go back into the middle. Teddy Bluger, obviously, is an option down the middle. So realistically, if we assume that Oman and Lafferty were to both stay in the lineup once Souter gets healthy, that's six guys that you can rely upon to be center icemen if you need them to. So that allows Tockett to have a lot more flexibility, not just in you know game-to-game decisions on the lineup, but in terms of in-game adjustments and getting guys out there and maybe being able to have two guys on the ice that can win a draw if you need to try and win a critical face off at a critical time in a game. And that's not something we've seen from the Canucks forward group in years past.
1: No, we haven't. And, you know, look at the Niels Oman example for one He's currently on the fourth line right now, but he is not a, an early option. And Rick Tockett, if the cap issues uh, to start off the year, maybe he would have had him on the lineup anyways. But, you know, as of right now, if you go through the center list, it's Elias Petterson, JT Miller, you've got Teddy Bluger. Prior to that, Pew Suter was in the lineup. Prior to that, Sam Lafferty was playing center. So really, Niels Oman is option six at this point. So last year, it was... Niels Oman, Sheldon Drys, you had a couple other names in there as well, which were you're not necessarily the greatest depth options, but they were playing a lot of the season. I remember talking and asking Bruce Boudreaux about Sheldon Drys' game. He'd had a good game uh, at some point last year, and Boudreaux was very honest, saying he's got a lot to prove that he's an NHLer, even though he was playing pretty well at that point in time. Uh, that does speak to the depth difference now versus then, so Progress has been made, and if you start looking across the league, Batch, at some of the more successful teams over the last number of years, they load up with centers. There, there might be natural centers on the team, but they're playing right or left wing. And Tampa Bay's done a really good job of that, where, you know, obviously, we're talking about one of the teams, the the elite teams over the last five, six years, decade, in this league, but... They've always done that where they're going to load up on centers. And if you have more versatility, it's going to give you strength throughout a season. You have that depth and definitely in the playoffs where, you know, if a guy is stuck on the ice and there's icing. You're not, you know, for those key faceoffs, you've got a couple of guys that can take that draw if they get stuck on the ice. So it is a great, uh, I think, addition. Uh, It gives you a little bit more options. But even later on in the year, uh, if this team continues to play this way where they're in a top three Pacific spot or they're fighting for a wild card, you know, it's going to pay dividends at that point, point too, but you need to get these guys experience. You need to get them reps. It's what's happening now right now, but um, uh, it's a good move in terms of adding to this team. Uh, now you just need some production on the high end, especially.
0: And it's going to be interesting because, you know, we'll we'll talk about Kuzmenko and his situation on the other side, but a big part of the reason that he didn't play in the game in San Jose is because you got a good performance from all 12 of your forwards. And, you know, certainly that wasn't the case in the game in San Jose, as opposed to the night before in Seattle, which, you know, the, the two performances were kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of uh, a performance that you can use as a great example of a good road win. And one that you can use as an example of exactly the way you don't want to play on the road in an opponent's building. But, You know, we'll talk about Kuzmenko in a couple of moments, and we're going to get into who might be a candidate to come out of the lineup if we assume that Andre Kuzmenko goes back in on Tuesday on home ice against the Anaheim Ducks. That and a lot more still to come. This is In the Booth with Brendan Batchelor and Randeep Janda right here on your official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650 with yours truly, Brendan Bachelor and Randy Chanda. If you miss any part of the show, if you're listening on Sportsnet 650, you can get this as a podcast. It drops every week on the Canucks Central podcast feed, so make sure to subscribe to that. You get Sat and Reach and the work they do every weekday. You get every post game show with Sat and Bick, and you get this program with us once a week as well, a Sunday episode this week because the Canucks had the Friday, Saturday back-to-back in Seattle with the win, and then in San Jose with the loss. Okay, Randy, let's get into it now. Andre Kuzmenko, 14 points this year, but a healthy scratch in back-to-back games to conclude this road trip after a performance in Colorado that left something to be desired, and I I don't want to say I was not surprised by this decision because I think any time you take a top six forward and you healthy scratch him, it's a little bit surprising, but Rick Tockett had left us some breadcrumbs before he ultimately decided to pull Kuzmenko out of the lineup with some of his comments about his play over the last couple of weeks.
1: No doubt, and it was a lot of... um... A lot of focus on that 3-2 goal from Colorado. Riley Tufty scored it, and there's a lot of focus even within the game call about Ian Cole being out-muscled, which is true, right? That's a net front battle he ends up losing, but how does the puck get there? And Kuzmenko, just being the guy that's supposed to protect the rail, doesn't. He's, it's kind of a, a pretty you know, lackadaisical uh, effort on the play, and Rick Talkett called it out after the game, and that was a, you know, sometimes you need that reset, and this is a player that... In the past, when he's able to score goals for you, you look past the occasional mistake. And even though you mentioned it, 14 points this season, that's nothing to you know uh, look the other way on, it's still not the production that you'd want from a guy that is still going to make his mistakes on the ice defensively and in his own zone. So to me, Batch, I wasn't all that surprised um, in the sense that once those comments came out, you said, okay, that's a that's an interesting comment by Rick Tockett. Uh, the second game, it was definitely not a, a surprise where after the Seattle game where all the forwards played well, all the lines were pretty solid. Um, when a team rewards you for uh, with a better effort against the Seattle Kraken and Kuzmenko's out again, I'm not surprised on that one because to me that Seattle game was a complete effort, but a little bit of a surprise, as you mentioned, uh, right off the bat because anytime you've got a guy that's making five-plus million dollars coming out of the, the lineup, it, it's based on – his contract—it's a surprise, but based on some of the plays that were lacking, uh, not a
0: surprise. The biggest surprise for me of the whole situation was Dan Riccio on Twitter on Saturday you know that. saying that he would have pulled DiGiuseppe out of the lineup to put Kuzmenko back in. What's he doing here, Randy? You know, like I—I I, sent out the the Godfather gift too. You know, they look how they massacred my boy. Like what is Reach yeah. doing here, turning on his guy? I uh, see. You know, this is this is beautiful because
1: I also sent out one which was Godfather themed, and uh, we're on the same wavelength. I did the other one though, it's Michael's kissing Fredo, where uh, basically he <laughs> he uh, he finds out he's been betrayed by Fredo. Um, yeah, Rico, I'm I'm not sure if this is great for his branding either. I, the logic behind it, Rico, he's so invested in the PG PDG brand that he just turned his back on his boy. But you know what? With that one. Looking ahead, so we've kind of we know the deficiencies in Kuzmenko's game, right? We know where he needs to improve. Uh, about we've talked about it a fair bit on uh, the last couple of podcasts and shows I've mentioned, where you know trust is really the story when it, cu- it comes to Kuzmenko for the rest of the season. Can you turn yourself into a player that is going to have the trust of the coach in March and April? Like that's what I'm watching when it comes to Kuzmenko. So you know, sitting for a couple of games, it happens to some really good players every now and then. It's the, all right, what's next? They have a flat game against San Jose. Even though the third period they played better, uh, it was li- too little, too late, as you mentioned. You need offense. You need a dynamic player alongside Elias Pettersson. So who's coming out? And, uh, you know, PDG, at this point in time, even though it's anti-Dan Riccio brand, is probably the most likely player for me as well, based on the fact that you're not sitting Niels Oman, who gives you center versatility. You're not... Sitting Sam Lafferty, in my opinion, who's been probably their one of their best two players the last two games, uh, is it? Is it Phil DiGiuseppe?
0: It could be Niels Hoaglander too, I guess. Although I've really liked the way he's played lately, and he's been yeah. producing offense, so um, that wouldn't be my choice. But the head coach has scratched Hoaglander in the past, so um, you know it, it wouldn't be entirely unprecedented. But if you want to run your team like a meritocracy and say, okay, the guy that's playing better right now deserves to be in the lineup, then I don't think you can pull Hoaglander out either. And, you know, I think more interesting than whether Kuzmenko goes back into the lineup, because I expect Kuzmenko to go back into the lineup. I would be really surprised if Rick Tockett sits him for a third straight game and sits him on home ice to boot in that third straight game. But I wonder what the the line deployments going to look like. Um, you know, at Monday practice, whose line will Kuzmenko be on? Because I think, you know, conventional wisdom for a reason would say if you're not going to play Andre Kuzmenko with skilled players, or not going to play him in the top six, then you're not giving him an opportunity to succeed. But that said, you know, Pedersen's been struggling a little bit, as we talked about earlier in the show. If you're not liking what you're getting from Kuzmenko, does it really make a ton of sense to put those two guys back together right now? Maybe that's what they'll go to because they have had chemistry. They have had success in the past. Uh, maybe the reset helps Kuzmenko sort of re engage in his two way game and getting Kuzmenko back on his wing helps Pedersen get back to himself. Um, but I, I do wonder if we see the lines go into the blender even more as we head into this week.
1: Yeah, that's a fascinating topic because two, two fronts here, right? You mentioned Elias Pedersen and. One of the areas that you maybe want to protect that line is defensively. And with Andre Kuzmenko, that's not a strength of his right now. And if Elias Pedersen's not playing his game, if you're not getting as much scoring five on five, um, is adding Kuzmenko to that line going to be good for it? Uh, When you're playing some really good teams coming up here, uh, in terms of Vegas and Calgary, who's starting to feel it a little bit. And don't, you know, look now, but they're essentially chasing the Seattle Kraken uh, for for the final wild card spot. So they're not that far off in terms of, of being a competitive team again. So to me, when I look at that roster decision, I'm just saying, okay, the Pedersen line, what do you want to do this, with this right now? I, in an ideal situation, you want them to outscore anybody, but is Lafferty playing next to Pedersen also helping them out defensively a little bit? Makayev is a, usually a pretty a reliable defensive player. Um, adding Kuzmenko to the mix, Is that going to maybe make them an easier team to play against? And is that the smartest thing to do right now when Pedersen's not feeling it offensively at the very least? Uh, Batch also Kuzmenko to me has to play in the top six. I I don't think experimenting in the bottom six is an option. So you're probably looking at one of two players: Sam Lafferty and Anthony Bavilia moving down to the fourth line. And at this point in time, I do feel like moving one of those guys to the fourth line and bumping a Phil Giuseppe is probably the way to go because Niels Hoaglander, even though he had zeros across the board in that last game, he still got more ice time. He was still the more likely to score in that game. Uh, outplayed Phil Giuseppe in terms of time on ice by over 90 seconds. And Phil DiGiuseppe uh, is a player that he looks like he's hit a bit of a wall right now. Maybe, you know, when you're talking about reset, when you're talking about bringing energy, uh, this is a player that could maybe use a bit of a break and comes back re-energized. So I would still go with Hoaglander. I like his speed. I like his aggressiveness. Um, overall, though, you need to play Kuzmenko in the top six. Uh, here's, here's one thing I'm going to propose. If he might be, and I don't want to say defensive liability, but if he's a player that you don't trust defensively, next to Elise Pettersson right
0: now, do you consider playing him on that Brock and JT Miller line? Yeah, I was just going to go there because... He has played both wings in the past. I know pretty much exclusively this year he's been the right winger with Mikheyev and Patterson, but we saw him flip back and forth. So you could put him with Miller and Besser. The one thing that I would say, though, and it's part of the reason why he was out of the lineup, it's part of the reason why Lafferty was promoted, and it's also part of the reason why Giuseppe got a chance in the top six for an extended stretch this year is – I think Rick Tockett wants guys in those spots in particular, whether it's on the Miller line or on the Patterson line, that will be aggressive, straight-line players that get in on the forward check that force turnovers, that help create offense that way. And when that line with Miller, DiGiuseppe, and Besser was at its best this year, you know we talked about it early in the year, they were the only line that had two guys that would get in heavily on the forecheck in Miller and DiGiuseppe and force those turnovers, and Besser was the beneficiary because he could get to those scoring areas and create chances." That's not Andre Kuzmenko's game. And Talkett has spoken specifically about Pedersen needing a predictable north-south player And it's clear that he liked Di Giuseppe in that role with Miller and Besser. And what would I say about Di Giuseppe? You know, even if he hasn't been playing his best over the last few games, he's a predictable north-south player. So Andre Kuzmenko doesn't profile as the kind of player they want on those lines. And to me, it speaks more of a crisis of identity in terms of the way Talkett wants to play as opposed to the players that he has at his
1: disposal. And that's a really good point, though, because it feels like when we're talking about having Kuzmenko in either of those lines, trust is a key factor, right? With Elias Patterson, um playing the way he is right now, you do want a little bit of cover there, as I mentioned before. Uh, the suggestion about playing Kuzmenko on the JT Miller line, great in theory, because it may give, you know, a player a little bit more confidence, but you bring up some great points. He doesn't profile as that type of player. And Batch, the other thing is that JT Miller line is the matchup line for this team. So if you don't trust a player defensively all that much, you're not going to put him on the matchup line that's going to get the tough matchups. And, you know, we've heard Rick Talkett mention the Vegas Golden Knights and the style of game that they play. And we hear that from coaches a lot. The reigning champs are the ones you generally look at. But the wingers that they have in the top six is, you know, Barbashev who plays hard skill, like the definition of hard skill. Ivan Barbashev played that last year in the playoffs. March is so. He's got sandpaper in his game. He's got skill. You look at Mark Stone, I don't need to say anything there. We know what he is. He's one of the best in the league at the way he plays. And even a player, Brett Howden, who's playing in the top six right now, alongside Chandler Stevenson on that second line, um, is a player that profiles a certain way. So, some of the better top sixes in the league, you know, it's that hard skill that you speak of, being aggressive on the forecheck, being able to get to the middle of the ice, um, and taking a beating every now and then. And Tockett has mentioned the Vegas Golden Knights numerous times as kind of being the standard in the NHL. Andre Kozmenko is not that type of player at this point in time. So you do wonder where is the best fit for him and what does he have to show this coach? If he's not scoring goals, are you doing those other things? And I, I mentioned that forward group in Vegas, of course, Jack Eichel is the one name I leave out, uh, but he's a part of that mix as well. Is that it's not only about having that flair and that high end skill; it's about you got to get to certain spots on the ice, you got to be aggressive, you got to you know be able to play a certain way for playing on the wings. And Kuzmenko, I'm not sure at this point in
0: time where in the top six he fits. Well, and here's the other fascinating part of this conversation too is. We're talking about one lineup decision here in terms of, okay, you're going to put Kuzmenko back in. Who are you going to take out? Where's Kuzmenko going to fit in? What happens if Pew Suter's ready to go this week, too? And we haven't had an update on Suter's condition. He didn't go on the road trip with the team. That was the last report that we heard day-to-day with an undisclosed injury. And I do want to bring up something that I I noticed, is that the classification of that injury changed very slightly before the road trip, where initially, Tockett said day-to-day. And then the last time we spoke to him prior to the road trip, he said he's being reevaluated daily, which I think is an important distinction to make because that means that you know they're touching base with him, they're seeing how the injury's doing, whatever it might be. We don't have any clarity on that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's an imminent return. But let's work with the assumption that Pew Suter's ready to go this week. And you want to insert him back into your lineup, which you are obviously going to do because he was playing really well between Joshua and Garland before he went out with the injury. So then we're talking about two guys having to come out of your lineup. And if there isn't trust there for Kuzmenko right now, you know, it's entirely possible that he finds himself back in the press box less because of anything he's done specifically wrong, but more because of a numbers game and because of the team getting healthy And then on top of that, that means there's going to be a decision that someone has to go down to Abbotsford, which, as I alluded to earlier in the show, is probably not going to be Neil Oman now because he's got to go through waivers, and it makes you wonder if finally, in the next week or two, we might see a trade or a move because of how congested this roster is getting. Of course, this is all assuming that they stay healthy and don't pick up any more injuries, which is never safe to assume with an NHL team, but... That's kind of the the looming specter or the looming decisions that they're going to have ma- to make organizationally, not just with a guy like Kuzmenko and whether he's in the lineup on a night-to-night basis, but in terms of maybe having to move someone out or having to expose someone that you like on waivers.
1: Yeah, one of the things that's going on right now is all of those things you mentioned about terms of players getting healthy. But, you know, the underlying thing here in the last week or so, the team hasn't been uh, hitting the high notes, so to speak. They haven't been winning. Um, the way that you'd want them to win. They've been, you know, obviously losing to the Sharks. Colorado, you can understand, is still a good team. But we've talked about the trends of late. So part of this is getting those players into the lineup, seeing what works from a cap situation. The other is addressing those needs, right? Um, Even though you have a surplus of wingers on this roster, are they the types of wingers you want? And some of these contracts are the ones that, you know, Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin inherited from the previous regime. Some of them are players that they brought in and have worked to a certain degree. So it's a part of the mix of, are you in a situation where you're saying, okay, we've seen what we're getting from these guys, and we're going to have to make a roster decision at some point, but we've also found out something about how they're playing under our you know, in our team and how they're playing within a Rick Tocket system. So really intriguing to watch there. On the Kuzmenko front, I do wonder, Batch, if you look at, it, at, the, at the types of matchups that are coming as well, because the ducks game i suspect and i i'd be shocked if kuzmenko's not in the lineup for tuesday you'd expect him to be there but the vegas golden knights matchup kind of strikes me as a colorado type of matchup where all it takes is one or two mistakes in a game and those mistakes when when you know they can cost you and i i know there's been a lot of concerns in vegas as well just about some of their depth scoring and and there's been you know chatter in that market even though they're still the best team in the division but do you use Andre Kuzmenko as of right now while you're trying to figure out the identity of your lineup, your top six, and what he can provide? Do you maybe use him somewhat selectively against certain teams? And I look at that Vegas matchup and I say, if you're not confident about a player playing uh, to your system or making the right decisions, that's going to be a tough matchup. So, a lot at stake in in that game for Andre Kuzmenko against the Ducks where he's got to win back trust, especially leading into that Thursday game against the Vegas Golden Knights.
0: Yeah, certainly. And, you know, it also poses a question that we don't really have time to delve into this week about um, at what point, you know, you want to play a certain way if you're Rick Tockett, but if playing that certain way means sitting guys that can produce a lot of offense for you as we've seen Kuzmenko is able to do then should you be rethinking your philosophy or should you be tweaking Mm -hmm. your game plan to make sure that that guy is in the lineup and those are the sorts of questions that are being asked in Vancouver and anytime you lose to the worst team in the NHL by record those sorts of questions are going to be fair Speaking of questions, it's time to get to our listener questions this week, and we've got a few that we want to get to here, people that wrote in on Twitter. Uh, Tim writes in, and this is a two-part question, but to me it's an interesting one. Tim says, what could the Canucks realistically do to get better 5-on-5 play, considering the cap restraints? Also, is the lack of control and consistent scoring chances at 5-on-5 more a result of the forward or the defensive personnel. And I don't think there's a lot they can do because of the salary cap restraints. The only thing i would I would look to is if you can find a way to move a forward out and bring another defenseman in to sort of shore things up on the back end, especially with Susie out of the lineup right now. I think that's important um you know they don't look as confident transitioning the puck in my opinion without Susie in the lineup, not that he's the best defenseman we've ever seen, but that would certainly help them having another more experienced guy or or someone that has more of a an NHL pedigree as opposed to having Juleson and and Friedman in the lineup on a nightly basis, and your other options right now being Hirose and McWard, which they haven't been willing to go to yet. So that's immediately what jumps to mind for me is – if you could find a way to move a forward out and bring a defenseman in, that's something they could do. But I also think that organizationally, that's something they would have done by now if they were able to do it. And the flat cap and how tight they are and how little salary cap space they have is playing a big role in their inability to address some of these needs.
1: Yeah, in terms of you know the cap restrictions, I, I think you, you address it well there. The other thing I would look at is you know, internally, are there some better options that might be able to help you move the puck up the ice, transition the puck a little bit better, uh, even though Mark Friedman and Noah Juleson have played a role here. Uh, internally, I'm still of the opinion that I think Christian Willanen will play a role on this team uh, in the in the future, in the short-term future, based on the fact that, you know, there is a, a player that can give you something a little bit more offensively. Uh, he's got to... He's got to up his game defensively. I talked to him at the captain skates at UBC earlier this year batch uh, before the season started, and he told, uh, he mentioned that, hey, you know, being better and uh, with a little bit more snarl in his game, a little bit more physical, uh, was a challenge that was issued to him by the organization Um, at the AHL level. He's been able to crank up the points. I'd like to see if that translates to the NHL level, but he's had some uh, health trouble this season. He hasn't been uh, up at the NHL level yet, but that's a player that if you're trying to say, okay, long-term, there's a lot of needs for this team. They probably have to add at least one more player in the top six on the wings. Uh, they probably have to add another, you know, really good top four defenseman at some point, but in the short term, internally, that's one player I think that, you know, the defense by committee uh, still hasn't included Christian Wolan, yet can he offer something different that might be able to, Help improve them five on five play, even if it's 15 minutes per game at a time. Uh, where you know he's not going to play that much, but does he maybe raise the floor a little bit on that third pair?
0: That's a great question. Thanks for submitting that. Tim, here's another one from at Jungle Bets on Twitter. What are the chances Baines will actually get called up? Arshdeep Baines, of course, had a great training camp, has gone down to Abbotsford, you know, hasn't been one of the guys chosen for a recall to this point. We've seen Linus Carlson. We've seen Jack Studnika. Now we're seeing Niels Oman. Not Arshdeep Baines yet. And my initial reaction, Randeep, is... It would have to take a few injuries for that to happen with the depth they've got it forward right now and the possibilities that we're looking at in talking about the fact that once Suter's healthy, one of the guys that's currently on the roster is going to have to go down to Abbotsford and possibly be exposed on waivers. But that said, I don't want to make it sound like Baines isn't on the radar either because I know organizationally they're very high on him, and I think they would like to get him up to the NHL if they get an opportunity.
1: I think the the likelihood is quite high. Now, does that mean it's immediate? No. But when you're looking at a player, that a couple of things. First of all, um, he started off the season being one of the highest point getters in all of the AHL. He was leading the the league in scoring for a little bit, alongside Christian Willan. And he's a point per game player still, above a point per game player. But he's now in that you know top twenty five of scoring. So it's kind of come down to earth in that regard. He's not. Um, in that same discussion as some of the guys uh, that are in the top five or top 10, Uh, still very good playmaker, three goals and 14 assists this season. But one of the things outside of the skill that I think is really working with Baines is that he's a player that we've seen two things. A, he's a smart player, right? And the timing of the game, the speed of the game at the NHL level is something that he takes a while to get used to. But one thing that he's got is between the ears, the organization likes the way a, that he He's able to think the game. He's got a high hockey hockey IQ. And on top of that, Batch, uh, Arsdeep is also a player that they see as kind of somebody who can smash through those ceilings, where if you put a limit on him, even when he was signed as an overager, uh, the ability to play, you know, a certain style and work hard and really, that's what they want from their wingers right now, where it's, hey, be aggressive on the forecheck and you know, play that role of that workman-like role. So I think we'll see him at some point this season. I don't think it's in the short term because you're right. I think it's something that they're they're going to try to address in different ways. They got a lot of a uh, surplus of wingers right now, but I I still think the likelihood is high uh, that he'll be making his NHL debut this year.
0: Seventeen points in fifteen games with the Abbotsford Canucks this year for Arshdeep Bain. So rounding out offensively as well, and and that will help his case certainly. To. Okay, we got a, a couple of other questions that we're not going to have time to get to this week. So, Tim, who wrote in with a good one about divisional realignment, we're going to push it because I want to take some time to talk about it next week because I think it's a really interesting conversation. But with all of that said, it's time for our rose ceremony. Randeep, you can go first. Who do you want to give your rose to this week? Okay, I have a
1: very specific condition for my rose ceremony. This okay. Is, it's I give my rose to Tyler Myers anytime he plays the Seattle Kraken. Because I don't know what gets into this man when he's playing the Seattle Kraken, but he starts getting nasty, mean, sometimes he's playing on the line, sometimes he crosses the line. He's no longer a gentle giant. You can go ask some of the players like Matty Beneers from last year, Yamamoto. He had another big hit uh, this past game against Seattle, which was Uh, and a lot of people's opinions batch. We talked about it. Some people think he crossed the line with uh, maybe the way he hit uh, the Seattle player, but I like that nastiness. I like that edge. So, you know, for, uh, For a a very different type of rose for me, I I like
0: mean Tyler Myers. My rose this week is going to Niels Oman. I kind of alluded to it earlier, but anytime the head coach is going out of his way to praise you, when he's asked a question that has nothing to do with you, it means you're doing something right. So I'll give my rose to Niels Oman, who I think has looked pretty good in a couple of games at the nhl level we are fresh out of time this week thanks for joining us again for in the booth you can catch the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and we'll talk to you again coming up on friday in just a few days right here on sportsnet 650